Turn with me in your Bibles to Luke 24. Our scripture reading this morning is Luke 24, verses 28 through 43. If you are using one of the Pew Bibles, you will find these verses on page 885. You will remember that in the first paragraph of chapter 24, we watched a small group of women who had been with Jesus in Galilee. We watched them go and discover the empty tomb. Well, they encountered two angels who reminded them of Jesus' words. We then watched as they ran to tell the other apostles and disciples who were gathered together what they had seen, only to have their report dismissed as an idle tale. In the second paragraph, we watched Jesus have a conversation with two of his disciples, two disciples who had heard the women's report as they traveled on the road back to Emmaus. As they walked, these disciples were trying to make sense of all the things that had happened when Jesus joined them and were told, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, interpreted to them all the scriptures, showing them it was necessary that Christ suffer these things before entering his glory. And so to this point in chapter 24, No one has seen Jesus so as to recognize him. The women didn't see him at all, and the two disciples saw him, but they didn't know it was him. And so, no one has seen Jesus. They've seen the empty tomb. All, it seems, have heard the report of the empty tomb, But to this point, none have knowingly seen him. And that will change in the verses before us this morning. Let us read the account together. Luke 24, beginning at verse 28. This is the very word of God. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted, that is, Jesus, as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is towards evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. 
And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. That is the reading of God's word. Let us pray and ask for God's blessing upon the preaching of his word here this morning. Father God, we come before you this morning humbly asking that your spirit, the same spirit who inspired Luke to record these accounts, that he would now be here among us at work through your word to teach us the truth, to conform us to the truth, and to set us free to bring forth the fruit of the truth in our lives to the praise of your glory. Give us eyes this morning to see Jesus and to believe in his resurrection and to live as people with living hope. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we have seen over the course of the last few weeks, before Jesus showed himself to the disciples, before he he allowed them to, to see him as to know him, he first reminded them of his words, or reminded them of the words concerning himself. The reason that he does this. The reason that he he reminds them of his words before showing himself alive to the disciples is because they needed to understand the significance of his death before they could properly understand the significance of his resurrection. We know from their confusion and their bewilderment and the immediate days following Jesus' crucifixion, that the disciples never thought of Jesus' death as part of the plan. Rather, they they saw it as something contrary to his mission as the Messiah. They they knew that he was the Messiah. They they knew that he was the Christ. They they knew that he was the long-promised Savior finally come. But they did not understand that it was necessary for him to suffer these things before entering into his glory. On the contrary, it it seems that his death was viewed by them as as something that threatened everything, as as something that, that drew a question mark upon all that he had come to accomplish. So Jesus needed them to see his death Differently, He needed them to see his death with with new eyes. He needed them to understand that his death was, in fact, the ultimate fulfillment of his mission. They needed them to understand that his death was was the ultimate fulfillment of God's plan of salvation. It was not a threat. It was not simply a, a strange interruption. But rather, it was the climax of the work that he had come to do. Because only when they saw this could they properly understand the significance of him returning to them bodily. Think about it for a moment. If they had seen Jesus alive before they understood his death, they probably would have assumed that the plan as they understood it before his death was now back on track. They would have assumed that his his death was a close call, that it was a a moment when when things almost fell apart, when when things almost went off the rails. They would have viewed his death as as a disaster narrowly avoided. They most certainly would not have seen it 
as the climax and completion of the work that he came to do. And so Jesus teaches them about his death. He he reminds them of the the teaching that had been given by the Old Testament prophets about the, the suffering of the Christ. He shows them all this before showing himself alive to his disciples. But having done this, having showed them and and taught them that, yes, it was indeed necessary for him to suffer these things, he now reveals himself to them. There are actually three appearances in these verses. Two we see directly. The third is simply referred to. We we simply have a, a passing reference to Jesus appearing to Peter. This morning our focus is going to be on the appearances that we see directly. In verse 28, Luke tells us that when Jesus and the two disciples drew near to the village, Jesus acted as if he were going further. But these disciples, having been enthralled by his exposition of the Old Testament Scriptures, being just enchanted by all that he had shown them about the Christ and how it was necessary for him to suffer and to die, they they strongly urged Jesus to, to stay with them, and he agrees to do so. Then in verse 30 we read, When he was at table with them, he took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him. So as they would later tell the disciples, they knew him. He was known to them in the breaking of the bread. In the second scene, Jesus is known first by a straightforward physical examination. Luke says that when Jesus appeared to the disciples, they were startled and frightened and thought that they saw the Spirit. Even though they had heard the reports of the empty tomb, even though they had heard that that Jesus had been raised from the dead, when they saw him, their first response was to be frightened, to think that they had seen a spirit. But then Jesus says to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your heart? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. We usually associate that sort of examination with doubting Thomas, don't we? He's the one who needed to touch Jesus. He's the one who needed to to see him with his own eyes. He's the one who said he would not believe until he had the opportunity to do these things. But we need to to see that, that Jesus offers this very proof to all of the disciples when he appears to them. This suggests that it was not Thomas's desire for compelling proof that was the problem. But rather, it was his unwillingness to believe the reports of those who had received such proof. And that's significant. It's not the requirement that it be shown, that it be proven, but rather it's the inability to believe those who have received such proof that gives Thomas his name. We'll come back to that in just a moment. But for now, simply notice that Jesus offers them compelling physical proof. But after this, after showing himself to them, after allowing them to to, to touch and see that he has flesh and and bones, Jesus further confirmed his bodily resurrection by eating with them. Verse 41, and while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything to eat? 
And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. So in both cases, Jesus reveals himself either through a meal or or with a meal. And I want us to see first that, that these meals prove the fact of the resurrection. That's, that's significant. They, he, it, Jesus offers the disciples proof. He, he offers them compelling evidence. But more than this, I also want us to see that these meals give us a picture of the blessings that the resurrection has secured for Jesus' disciples. So let's begin with how these meals prove the fact of the resurrection. We must understand that that resurrection does not mean merely life after death. We've said this before, but it bears repeating. Resurrection does not mean merely life after death. Most people throughout history have believed in some sort of life after death, and this is still true today. Most people today believe in life after death. Yes, there are some strict materialists who who believe that physical death is the absolute end of a person's existence. There are those who who believe there is no immaterial spiritual soul that lives on after a person's physical death. But this view has always been and continues to be the minority report. The majority of people, and I would even say the, the vast majority of people, believe in life after death. But this does not mean that most people believe in resurrection. Resurrection is is something other. It it is something different. It is more than life after death. Because resurrection means new bodily life, new physical life after death. It is not simply that your soul lives on after your body dies. Resurrection means that your soul receives a new body. To be resurrected is to be resurrected to bodily, physical life. When we profess that we believe that God raised Jesus from the dead, that is what we mean. We mean that Jesus was raised to new bodily, physical life. And when we profess faith in our own future resurrection based upon the hope of His resurrection, that is what we mean. We mean that we will one day be raised after our deaths to new bodily, physical life. And that is what Jesus intends to prove to His disciples by sharing a meal with them. Disembodied souls do not break bread or eat broiled fish. And so Jesus sits down to a meal with them to show them, yes, I am one of flesh and bone. I am one who's been raised to to new bodily life. But I want us to see this morning, the first thing that I want us to notice this morning is that this is compelling evidence. I know it is hard to believe in Jesus' bodily resurrection. I know our our scientific, rational minds tell us that those sorts of things don't happen. But as we've said in previous weeks, it was hard for the first disciples to believe too. 
They weren't prone to believe in such things. They, they did, if they were good Jews, believe that there was going to be a resurrection at the end of the age. But they certainly didn't believe that anyone was going to be raised to life in the middle of history. And those who were Gentiles, those who were not part of the Jewish community, they didn't believe in resurrection at all. They regarded it as an absolute absurdity. So they weren't prone to, to believe in it, and they certainly weren't expecting it. I mean, notice, even after hearing the reports, even after being told what has happened, they struggled to believe it when they saw it with their own eyes. Look again at, at verse 37. They've, they've heard the reports, but when Jesus appears in their midst, they were frightened and thought that they saw a spirit. But eventually, eventually the evidence overwhelmed their doubts and unbelief. Eventually, the evidence compelled them to believe. And that's what I want you to see. The evidence compelled belief. After seeing Jesus, after eating with Jesus, the first disciples could not but believe in his resurrection. And we need to understand that the evidence is just as compelling today. We do not have first-hand access, but we have the accounts of those who were there. We have the eyewitness testimony. We have the records of those who, who witnessed these things. And we even have records inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. But, but even if you struggle to believe in the inspiration of Scripture, we have historical records of those who, who witnessed His resurrection, of those who tell us that they sat down to a meal with Him. And we need to acknowledge that that is compelling evidence. People may choose not to believe it. People may choose to suppress the truth. But the evidence itself compels belief. It seems to be exactly Paul's point in 1 Corinthians 15. In discussing the, the resurrection of Jesus and how it leads to an assurance of our own future resurrection, he writes these words. He says, Jesus was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And then what does he do? He, he begins to list off all those who witnessed it. And he appeared first to Cephas, that is to Peter, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. This is the list. It's quite a list. It's a list of those who, who witnessed these things. It's a, it's a list of those who, who were compelled by the evidence to believe. And, and notice what he says. He says, listen, most of these are still alive. Why does he say that? He, he, he's challenging his readers. He said, listen, I know you're going to find this hard to believe. Go and talk to those who were there. Go and talk to those who were the original eyewitnesses. Clearly, Paul believes that the evidence, when honestly considers, considered, compels belief. I sometimes hear it said that believing in the resurrection is a matter of faith, not reason, as if the two were somehow opposed to one another. 
Well, I fully affirm this morning that it takes faith to believe in the resurrection, but I want you to understand that faith is in no way contrary to reason. They are not equal, they are not the the same, they are not identical, but they are not opposed to one another. Faith is reasonable. It is reasonable to believe in the resurrection because evidence compels us to believe in the resurrection. And this is one reason that Jesus eats with his disciples, that they might know that he is flesh and bone, that he is not merely a spirit. But this, of course, is not the only reason that Jesus chooses to to prove the fact of his resurrection with with a meal. I believe that these meals do more than that. I believe that these meals also give us a picture of the blessing that is ours through the resurrection. I think it does this at least in two ways. First, by these meals, by, by showing Jesus to have flesh and bones, show us that the salvation that is ours in Christ is a flesh and bone salvation. Remember, Jesus' resurrection is the the first fruits of our resurrection. What what happens to, to him is what will happen to us in him at the end of the age. How he has been raised is how we will be raised. So think for a moment about what that means. This means that our eternal destiny is not to live as disembodied souls In heaven. How do you think of the afterlife? How do you think of life after this present life? Do you think of it as as your soul abiding in the the joy of of heaven? Well, that's right in one sense. Yes, when we die, we will go to heaven. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But we must understand that according to Scripture, heaven is only temporary. We will only be there until the resurrection on the last day. After that, we will spend eternity with flesh and bone bodies living and working and and playing and doing whatever bodies do in the new and renewed earth. You see, salvation is not rescue from creation. But rather, salvation is the redemption of creation beginning with our own bodies and including the entire cosmos. This is important. It's important for us to to get this because it radically changes the way that we think, or at least the way that we ought to think, about our lives here and now. The, the, The promise of a future of flesh and bone resurrection gives our life here and now eternal significance. Think again about how Paul talks about this uh, at the end of 1 Corinthians 15. We know that 1 Corinthians 15 is is Paul's longest discussion of the resurrection, of of Christ's resurrection, and how his resurrection is the first fruits of our own resurrection. At the end of that chapter, he he says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. When uh, When the mortal puts on immortality, when all these things come to pass, in that moment the saying will be fulfilled that that death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? So he celebrates the fact that that death has has been defeated, that, that our future resurrection is sure. 
But coming to the conclusion of the chapter, he writes these words. Having set forth in no uncertain terms the doctrine of the resurrection, he writes, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Think about that for a moment. Just, just think about that concluding exhortation. Is that how you would have ended a chapter on the doctrine of the resurrection? Paul says, in effect, because all this is true, because death has been swallowed up, because we now have a living hope of, of resurrection on the last day, therefore, we, we should be always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that our labor is not in vain. In my experience, most people, or many people, think in exactly the opposite way. They think that because we have the promise of life after death, what we do here and now is unimportant. What we do here and now is really a matter of, of indifference. But Paul says, because we have the promise of, of new resurrected life and a renewed creation, because that hope is ours, therefore our labors are not in vain. Therefore, what we do here and now matters. Now, I'll admit it, it's, it's difficult for me to get my mind around that. It's difficult for me to, to comprehend how exactly that works, but it, but it seems clear that somehow the works we do here and now to the glory of God and the good of our neighbor, those works, the works of the Lord, Paul calls them, those works have eternal, lasting significance. Those works are not in vain, to echo the words of Ecclesiastes. Those, those words are not a vapor or, or a vanishing mist. Those words are not insignificant or in irrelevant. Somehow, in God's mysterious wisdom, those works will be brought into the new heavens and the new earth. They will be part of the new creation. Those works have lasting, eternal value. I don't know exactly how that works. But I know that it ought to motivate us to devote ourselves to do works that matter. As Paul says, be steadfast, immovable, and always abounding in the work of the Lord. If God was just going to scrap this world in the end, if he was simply going to save our souls and, and take them to heaven, then, then truly doing good works now would be polishing brass on a sinking ship. But Jesus' resurrection body, the, the body with which he eats a meal with his disciples, they, they tell us that this is not the case. God does not plan to abandon his creation, but to redeem it. He does not plan to let death win, but to overthrow it. He does not mean to save our souls only, but our whole selves, body and soul. And this is, at least in part, why he sits down to a meal with his disciples. That we might know we have a flesh and bone future, and because we have a flesh and bone future, because we will spend eternity in a renewed creation, therefore what we do now to the glory of our King, establishing his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, those works matter. Those works have eternal significance. But I think there's a second way 
that this meal shows us the blessing of the resurrection. Not only does it, does it show us that, that our work now has purpose and value, but it also gives us peace as we wait for that day, living in a world full of groaning, marked by sin and suffering. You see, this meal, these meals show us the fellowship or the communion that is now ours with Christ through his resurrection from the dead. In the incarnation, Jesus came down and he humbled himself and he ate with sinners in their brokenness and misery. That's, that was the, the direction of the incarnation. The incarnation was a, a coming down, an entering into of our mess. But now, after the resurrection, Jesus invites his disciples to come up, to, to eat with him in his glory. And as we sit down to eat with the glorified Christ, it is a picture and a foretaste of our final salvation, of the fellowship that will mark our life with him for all eternity. Look again at the, the language of the first account. We, we read that he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. I hope that language sounds familiar to you. And just in case you missed it, it's repeated in verse 35. The, the, the disciples tell how he was known to them. How? In the breaking of the bread. The language clearly echoes the, the language of the Lord's Supper. That does not mean that Jesus was celebrating the Lord's Supper with them in the, the house in Emmaus. That's not what was going on. I find that to be unlikely. But the echoes are intentional. The meal they shared was like the Lord's Supper in some way. It was, it was like the Lord's Supper in that it pictured a restored fellowship. In that it was a foretaste of, of that restored fellowship that we will enjoy in heaven for all eternity. Just as the Lord's Supper, this, this table to which we will come later in this service, just as the Lord's Supper points to that day when we will feast at the table of the Lord in the New Jerusalem, so did that meal. And what he was telling his disciples, what he was, what he was showing them, is that the greatest blessing of their salvation is a restored relationship. A, a table fellowship relationship. Yes, there are other benefits to being in right relationship with, with God. But the relationship itself is the supreme benefit. The relationship that we even now already enjoy. Even now we are justified. Even now we are at peace with God. And because this is true, one day we will feast with Him at His table. And Sunday after Sunday as we come to this table... We have the opportunity to experience a foretaste of that future delight. And regularly partaking of that meal allows us to, to, to think differently about our experience here and now. It allows us to, to think differently about those aspects of this life that cause us to groan. It allows us to think differently about the, the trials and the suffering that we will inevitably face until that day. I understand that for some, trials raise questions. Trials stir up doubts. They, they wonder if God is with them. They wonder if God has abandoned them. That is natural. I understand. But I want to suggest to you this morning that the resurrection encourages us to see those trials differently. 
But the resurrection encourages us to see those trials as as opportunities to to grow in fellowship, as, as we draw close to the Lord and as He draws close to us. This is why James tells us not not merely that we ought to rejoice in our trials, but that when we we ought to count it as all joy when we experience those trials. Because in the midst of those trials, we will learn the full depth of the relationship that is ours in Christ. We will experience more fully the joy of that fellowship that is ours through His resurrection. It doesn't mean the trials themselves are pleasant. It doesn't mean that we do not groan. It does not mean that we do not grieve. But we see those trials as opportunities to draw close to the God who has called us His children, who has made us heirs of His kingdom, and who has seated us at His table. This is why Jesus chooses to to show Himself through a meal. Because it's a picture of the restored relationship that is now ours through His resurrection. So what do we see? We we see that that these meals prove not only the fact of the resurrection, but they show us the blessings of the resurrection. They show us how the resurrection gives purpose to our work and gives peace in the midst of suffering through fellowship. And because these blessings are ours in Christ, and because these blessings are as sure as His resurrection body, That is one reason we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Let us believe it together. Father God, we do rejoice in your goodness. And we thank you for your grace. Father God, I pray that you would give us eyes to see your risen Son. To believe in him. To rest in him. And to hope in him. For the future that you have secured for us. In the new heavens and the new earth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.